0: Hello, I'm Lynn Kitchens. Welcome, Women in the Word. I'm glad to be with you wherever you are. We have been following Joshua and Israel as they begin to face new enemies in the Promised Land. I wanna talk today first though about two paths, two possible paths in our life. And as I thought about two paths, I thought about two paths in my childhood that meant a lot to me. And they illustrate some truths today. I grew up in this new subdivision, brand new, everything in it was new. And we had bought that land to build the subdivision. The people had done that from an old farmer named Hank. And this subdivision, everything was brand new except for Hank. Hank was an elderly man. He was a farmer. He had white hair. He kind of walked with a stoop. He wore those blue jean faded overalls. He was still living down the road on his property. He had a little white farmhouse and he had this sort of beat up old barn. And we loved to go there. I loved to go there. All the kids loved to go there because it was a fun place. Because Hank acted as if the barn was ours. He was so kind. He had a smile for us when we arrived. He didn't say a lot. But he would go about his business as he smiled and then we would go about our business which was playing in the barn playing hide and seek playing on the rafters jumping in the hay we loved our time there we went about enjoying it and loving going on that path that took us to hank's place it was a bright path it was a sunny path we had one other old home in our neighborhood and it was actually a house that belonged to Hank's sister, Bessie. The house was tall, it was old, it was foreboding, it was dilapidated, just think Adam's family and you'll get a picture for what this house looked like. It was at the end of my street, but no one much knew it was there because it was on this corner covered in the big old overgrown trees that once were on the property where the subdivision was. Most people uh, didn't know it was there, but we did. We knew there was a path that went from the street into the shadows of the dark trees, around in front of the porch of Bessie's house and back out on another side of the street. I didn't know anyone who ever dared walk on that path, but we would get on our bikes and get our courage and ride as fast as we could on that path going past the front porch of Bessie's old house just to get this look at this really scary place to us. And then we'd come back out into the sunlight once we passed her house. And you know what? If Bessie had ever come out on the porch, I think we would have fainted. But this was so interesting. Bessie never did because it seemed like she only came out at night. Sometimes we would see this little figure on the roads in our subdivision, in an old, long, black dress, wandering our streets. The path that took us to Bessie's house, it was a dark and a frightening path. If you go to my hometown today, here's what's interesting. You will, of course, not be able to find Bessie's house. It's fallen apart. It's, it just disappeared. But Hank's house, just down the road, was officially made a historical home in our little Dutch neighborhood, and it's preserved. It looks exactly the way it did when I was a child. You know, as as Christ followers, we also have two paths that we can choose in our lives today. They have two different outcomes as well. That is what we decide. One path's going to lead to light and truth and one path's going to lead to darkness and despair. These paths have to do with how we decide to live our lives. What's going to be our map for our lives? We can choose to live a life of obedience to God. We can choose to live a life of disobedience to God and face all the consequences that will come from those decisions. Today, we're going to see also that our personal choices don't only impact us. It impacts the family of God as well. Last week, we left Israel. They were in a great place. They had just won this incredible, miraculous battle over Jericho and this town. They heard the instructions God had for their victory, and they obeyed them. Well, almost everyone obeyed them. Let's take a walk down a path of disobedience. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel because God had instructed Israel that everything in Jericho was to be destroyed, except the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron. These things were holy to God. They were to be put in his treasury. The rest of the things were devoted to destruction. And the word devoted means to put a ban under and over those things. Jericho's contents were to be given to the Lord by totally destroying them. That's how they were to give them. They weren't supposed to take these things for themselves. And you and I might think, well, what could that hurt? Let me tell you things that it could hurt. First of all, everything in Jericho was to be devoted to God as the first fruits in the promised land. When Israel had a great crop and they were going to present it to God as the first fruits the very first produce that they got. They were saying, we know this came from you, and we know you're going to give us some more. So in this battle, winning this battle, dedicating the spoils to God, Israel would be saying to God, we know we won this battle because of you, and we know that you are going to help us win more battles. So Joshua had said to Israel, keeping those devoted things will make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble to it because the spoils of the battle of Jericho belong to their commander God. Also after the battle, Joshua had said, cursed is the man who rebuilds this city, but a man named Achan whose name means troubler, took some of the devoted things. And when he did, he was bringing things from that pagan place called Jericho into the holy camp of God. By doing that, in a way, he was keeping some of Jericho from being destroyed. Some of the city of Jericho still was existing. He compromised with evil, and invited spiritual disaster into the nation of Israel. The sin of Achan meant there was sin in the camp. Israel would discover this at their next battle with Ai. It was a battle by the way, where Israel didn't seem to seek God's direction. Very different than how they approached the town of Jericho. It was as if they assumed, okay, we won Jericho. We'll just keep going. Now we're going to win this next battle in Ai. And they forgot about how much they depended on God. They were walking by sight for the second battle and not so much by faith. If Joshua had sought God's orders, commands, and instructions to the battle of Ai, God would have said to him, there's sin in the camp. You can't win that battle until you deal with the sin in the camp. Instead, Joshua seemed to depend more on the spies that he had sent out into Ai. Now, these spies also had sort of a cavalier attitude and said, oh, it just doesn't look like much at all. Not a lot of people. Let's not send a lot of people into Ai. It's not going to be difficult for us. The truth was Ai had about 6,000 men soldiers and yet Joshua only sent 3,000 men from Israel. Israel moved forward with self-confidence and not God-confidence. They climbed the steep hill from a ravine up to the town of Ai and they got there and were shocked to find all these soldiers, powerful well-equipped, and Israel just did an about-face and went running back down the hill with the soldiers of Ai chasing them and ending up killing 36 Israelites. Israel was guilty of underestimating the strength of her enemy and overestimating their own power apart from seeking God. The people of Israel were defeated physically And emotionally look at verse 5 with me and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening he and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they will hear of it. And they'll surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The people were devastated. Where was God? Where was God like he was there in Jericho? And so this deep, just this deepness came into their heart, this fear and this sorrow and this discouragement. And it also lessened their faith in who God was. Joshua and the elders lay down on the ground for hours with their faces in the dirt, with their clothes torn, crying out to God, and Joshua wondering, why God? And questioning their defeat. You know, after Jericho was defeated, Joshua was magnified as a leader. We find him here mortified as a leader. He couldn't help because he was looking down the road and thinking about how many battles Israel was going to have to fight. And there was absolutely no way they could do it without God's help. Was it God's plan for them to be ridiculed and humiliated? Joshua was wondering this. The truth was this battle would be the only defeat for Israel in the seven years that it would take them to defeat the people of Canaan. Joshua had three questions for God. First, why did you bring us here just to destroy us? I read one person who said, Joshua was singing the blues here. He learned the lyrics of that song from the older Israelites before they crossed the Jordan. Remember how the Jews would always sing this song to God and to Moses. Why, oh, why did you bring us here? So Joshua's first question is a reproach. He blames God for this humiliating defeat. But the next two questions show that Joshua's leaning into some truth here and some faith. He says this, What can I say to you, God, now that Israel's been defeated? And then he says, What will you do, God, to protect your reputation before all these pagan nations? You know, this reminded me of Moses. I think Joshua is singing Moses' song here. And it was wonderful lyrics to this song because they both cared about the reputation of God. Look and see what God says in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've come devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God allowed Joshua and the elders just to lay in anxiety on their faces before the ark for many hours until the evening sacrifice. And then he shares that shocking news with Joshua. God was saying, why are you blaming me? It's Israel that has sinned. They've taken devoted things to Jericho, things that belong to me. Israel, you have crossed over the boundaries that I've put in place. And because of this, God is saying that Israel is devoted to destruction. And he says, I won't be with you unless you deal with this sin. So because of one man's secret sin, Israel's future was jeopardized. God's people lost a battle. They lost their hope and they lost their resolve. But we know there was only one man who did this. There was only one guy. His name was Troubler, a.k.a. Aiken. My first thought is, this doesn't seem fair. God finds all of Israel guilty when it's only Aiken who sinned and stole those things. When my daughter Cassie was in elementary school, there was one year where she was known as the bad class. Everywhere they went, people talked about, oh, well, that's the bad class. And they weren't allowed often to go out to recess when there were special events in the school. They weren't allowed to attend because they were the bad class. Why were they the bad class? Because of one child who made bad choices. Because that one child made those choices, they rubbed off on the entire reputation of that class. God had warned the Jews at Jericho and he warned them years earlier, any singular sin is going to infect the whole camp of Israel and it disrupts God's fellowship with them. Look on your verse sheet at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you, And to give up your enemies before you, therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So, you know, when God looks out at the nation of Israel, he doesn't think there's Tammy and John and Joe. They're doing their own thing. They're not following me. It's okay because over here, Susie and Tommy, they do follow me. No, he looks at the nation of Israel as a whole group that were called to follow him, that were called to be a set apart and a holy nation. What a privileged calling they have. And today we'd like to think that our secret sins don't infect the body of Christ, but we are also connected to everybody that believes in Jesus Christ. By our faith, we are called the church purchased by God for his glory and for his goodness. And just like Israel, we have a high calling. In this dark world, we are to be set apart. We are to be lights. We are to be a holy people. And our disobedience to God's word, one person upsets the camp of God. I read about a seminary professor who a church called and said, hey, we're in trouble. Come and fly out and help us. Some members are unhappy about some of the things. And so they're creating a lot of factions, talking about it a lot in the church. So the professor flew in to the room, came in the room and said to the group, the first thing he asked was, who is the group that's unhappy here? And this group raised their hands and they're all thinking, hey, okay. He's going to help us out. He's going to hear what we've got to say about changes that need to be made. Instead, the professor looked at the group, raising their hands and said, get out. You're causing division in the church of God. And that is sin. That's why our sins matter as a whole in the group of believers. The truth is, our willful personal sins cause issues in the church because we are a family of God. And I started thinking about our families. Think about when you get together with your family, your extended family, all your relatives, it's Thanksgiving, everybody's in a room. Does the sins of one member change the dynamics of everything in that room? Yes, it does. Sometimes it may even be from us, but sin. From a member in a big group like that, we'll change the dynamics. Look what 1 Corinthians says, 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, this is the church, with all those who in every place, the church, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. If one member of the church suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's a privilege and it holds responsibilities for us. Look at Ecclesiastes 9. I thought this was a good verse. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. God knew that. Israel needed to learn that. This is where we find Israel with the one person causing problems. God commands Israel then, consecrate yourselves. Separate from unholy things. Cleanse yourself because tomorrow we are going to let you find out who the sinner is and his sins. They would confront the sinner in sin by bringing every tribe before Joshua. And as each tribe came forward, they they would draw lots and then they would choose the tribe from God's direction that they needed to deal with. And then from the tribe, they pulled out the clans until they found the clan that God needed to deal with. And from the clan, they pulled out the men until they found the one man that was responsible the sin in the camp of Israel. Look at 715. Let's see what God says about that. He says, he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. God announces to Israel that this person must face destruction since he transgressed the covenant of God transgress means to cross over, cross God's boundaries to do your own thing. Now, when they heard this, when Israel heard this, there was probably lots of tossing and turning in the tents at night, people not being able to sleep, especially in Achan's tent. And now a solemn morning awaited them. Israel stood in silence, as the tribes were called forward. And then the tribe of Judah was stopped. And then from the tribe of Judah, the clan of the Zarahites was stopped. And from that clan, there, there were the households. And then one household was stopped. And then there were the men, and the men out of those men are pulled, the one man named Achan. Achan is shaking in his sandals. Why go through this process? Why didn't God just say, okay, Israel, you had a sinner. His name's Achan, here's where he is. We need to take care of it. By watching the process of exposing the sinner, Israel was learning how serious it is to disobey the Lord their God. Look at verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Well, truly, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see, they're hidden in the earth, inside my tent, with the silver underneath." Achan confess that he saw, he coveted, he took, and he hid those things that belong to God alone. Have you ever seen those steps in the Bible before? What about Eve deciding she wanted to eat that apple? What about King David deciding he wanted Bathsheba for his own? Both of these things wanting something that didn't belong to them. Achan stole a costly embroidered Babylonian robe. It would have been beautiful. He also stole five pounds of silver and over a pound of gold. God's first fruits of the battle of Jericho, the spoil that belonged to God was hidden in a dirty hole under a blanket in the tent of Achan. And you'll notice Achan didn't confess until he was caught. I think possibly if Achan had confessed before then, God would have had mercy on him as he had mercy on King David in his sins. Joshua's messengers, they were sent by Joshua. They ran to Achan's tent. They dug up the evidence of the rebellion that Achan had against God. They laid this evidence out before God as if to say, these things were devoted to you alone. And they were also saying, we know we can't go forward without you forgiving us and coming with us. We can't go forward with someone in our camp who's rebellious against your commands. God had commanded in Deuteronomy that children could not be punished for their parents' sin. And when we see in a minute that uh, Achan's family was killed with him, we realize that they were in on it with him. They also were responsible for trying to hide what belonged to God alone. They were fellow rebels. Look at verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters, oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, they burned them with fire, stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Because of his secret sin, Achan was openly judged and condemned to death. He lost his possessions he lost his family, and he lost his inheritance from God. Achan the Troubler was buried in the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. Later, if any Israelite was passing that way, they might see that big heap of stones there, and they'd go by shaking their heads. But guess what they'd be thinking? It is a high consequence to pay, to be disobedient to God's commands. Look what Jeremiah 16 says. God says, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. They would also think when they saw this heap of stones, hey, you can't hide your sins from God. He sees everything. Okay, I want to get off the defeated path. We're going to get on a path of obedience now, off the path of disobedience. Look at chapter 1, 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. When Israel stepped back on the obedient camp, immediately they were encouraged with the promise of victory. And don't you know these words just so encouraged their hearts. They were so fearful that God would not be with them. Now they're going back to battle A. O., but their approach is going to be very different. First of all, God will be the commander of this battle as he was in Jericho. Secondly, Israel's looking to God's instructions and his strength to win this battle. Thirdly, God says, gather all the fighting men, not just 3,000 men, gather all the fighting men. Fourthly, this time God instructs Israel to keep the spoil and the livestock from the battle. That's an amazing thing and you know why? The ban that God had placed over Jericho's spoil, he didn't place it over Ai because it wasn't the first battle. It wasn't the first fruits in the land of Canaan. So if Achan had waited on God's timing he could have brought some treasures back that God would have given him. So this was God's battle for strategy. Okay, Joshua placed an ambush of 30,000 men behind the city of Ai in the dark at night and said, wait there. They were to wait there until the next day when the second army came. This was an army Joshua was in. They came in the morning and they camped right out where Ai could see them camping. And they waited. And then the plan was when AI saw them, they would think, there they are again. Let's go get them and start running down the hill. And Joshua wanted all the people becoming running out of the city to leave it empty. And so Joshua and the people pretended to run. And those people that were in the back were to enter the city. The group that came from with Joshua did a 15-mile hike from Gilgal to get there that morning. They wanted the 30,000 to burn the city once they got there and could pull the people out. Also, Joshua, God had told them to set an ambush for the third group of about 5,000 men, and they were setting an ambush between Bethel and Ai because they knew the people of Bethel would come into fight with Ai. So let's see what happens. We'll join them as the people are coming out of Ai, chasing Joshua and the army away. Chapter eight, verse 18. And then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it into your hand. A javelin would have been a really heavy spear with something heavy on the end. When Joshua stretched out the javelin, toward the city, it was a signal to them, it's time to go into the city and burn it and destroy it. The men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. As soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran, entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. The king they took and hung separately. After this, and I thought it was so interesting that the Bible says, then they took his body and threw it at the city gates. And I thought, you know, there's no honor in being a king or a leader of an evil city. And they threw the heap of stones over him. So with God's guidance, Israel defeated an an evil society that had for a long time resisted God's grace and the truth of who God was. And because Israel followed God's instructions, they had a new sense of courage. Their faith was strengthened. And because of their obedience, they won a battle. They regained their hope and they believed in the promises of God again. On to the next battle. That's what we would think. That's what Joshua should do. But he doesn't do that. He has some other plans. He's following God's plans. Joshua planned to obey the command of Moses. Moses said, when you get in the promised land, I want you to do these things to renew commitment to God, to remind Israel of the importance of my word and to do it in three special ways. And Joshua would lead them in those ways. He interrupted Israel's military victories to bring Israel to this place, to renew their covenant's vows to God. He led men, he led women, he led children from the camp at Gilgal up the Jordan Valley into the town of Shechem to the area of the mounts of Ebal and Gerizim. This was about uh, 30 miles that they traveled for this really important ceremony that had these three parts to it. Part one. Joshua built an altar of stones on Mount Ebal and sacrifices were offered to the Lord in thanksgiving. And it was important that these stones had never been touched by human hands, that they were uncut stones, simple. And another reason would be no human work was connected to the stones because no human work can bring us closer to God. Secondly, On large stones, Joshua wrote a copy of the law of Moses. He may have written just the Ten Commandments, but probably at least parts of Deuteronomy, if not all of Deuteronomy. First, the stones would have been covered in plaster made from lime, and they would have been stones that were tall. In fact, stones like this have been found in the east six To eight feet tall and kings would in detail write about their military victories and how great they were. The stones Joshua is doing is going to make people think how great is God and how great are his words. Third part of this, Joshua was to read the words of God and his law and remind them that obedience brings blessings and disobedience brings judgment. Look at verse 35 in chapter 8. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. And when you look at Deuteronomy, you see how they do this. And I wish I was there. So exciting, you have these two mounts, Ebal and Gerizim. Half of Israel's on one side, half on the other side. And when they looked out across facing each other, they could see in the valley, God's with us. Cause there was the Ark of the Covenant and the priests with it. And it was the whole nation with God in the center of it. In between in that valley, their hearts would be encouraged. On the mountains, families would be close with each other, close with their tribe, close with their households. The wind would be carrying the sounds of each other's voices. Maybe some babies crying, maybe some weeping, because this was a very moving, important time with them together on the mount. When Joshua read the blessings of the law one by one, On one side of the mount, the people would say, amen, after he read each blessing. Then when he read the curses of disobeying God, the people on the other mount would say, amen, after he read each one. The truth shouted into the hearts of Israel was that the law of the Lord would be the law of their land. Obedience to that law would mean prosperity and great blessing. Because Joshua obeyed God in these things, he was a powerful leader for God's people. He confirmed God's promises and he was used by God to accomplish his purposes. And Joshua would be used by God his entire life. And I'm so inspired by that. I think I I want to stay on the path of obedience, just like Joshua did. But we can't just decide it's easy and it'll just happen easily. It's a narrow path. Look what Matthew 7 says. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the road and broad is the gate that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. In these chapters we just read, we can find a lot of hope for keeping on the narrow path. Here's what I found. First, remember, stepping off the obedient path does not permanently disqualify us from being used by God. I don't know about you, but my foot slips off the path every day. Every day I have some sinful attitude or a sinful action that doesn't align with God's word. I heard about a young mom. She was telling me the other day about her really young daughter. And the daughter came up to the mom and said, Mom, you know, I just got to tell you something I've never told you. Every time you tell me no, I feel really angry inside. So I'm asking you, Mom, from now on, would you just never say no to me again? And the mother looked at her and said, no. That was that. You and I, we like to push against those no's in our life because we're selfish. We want to do what we want to do. We want to have what we want to have. God, though, has provided us a way that we can be sure-footed and remain on that path of obedience. Look at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we stay on the obedient path. When we find those sins in our lives, we confess them to God. His mercies put us on his path. He'll continue to use us as he did Joshua and Israel. The sins that keep us on the disobedient path are those sins like Achan's. They're willful, they're rebellious, And we try to hide them and justify them inside our hearts. I learned also we stay on God's path by just relying on his strength. When Joshua faced a battle without God's help, he failed. We can't face the battles of the flesh in our lives without God's help. If we try to do it on our own, we will also fail. So that means we practice prayer, we practice confession, we practice humility. I heard this incredible, powerful testimony on the radio the other day I was driving. And in this station said, you know, call in if you have a praise. And this woman called in and told her testimony that she was a heroin addict and had been a heroin addict for years. And she tried and tried on herself to stop and she couldn't. And so one day she went into her living room and she said she was at the end of herself and she laid down on the floor and she cried out to God and she begged God to take this addiction away from her and she humbled herself and confessed her sins and she says after doing that for hours, all of a sudden, she felt this tingling in her feet that she had never felt before. She felt it going up her body all the way up until it went to the top of her head. And that was God taking that addiction away from her. She never wanted heroin again. And it had been five years and she was calling that radio station because she had to say, I have to praise God when I cried out to Him. Instead of trying to do things on my own, He did a miracle in my life. God has a battle plan for our victory, no matter what things are going on in our life. He has a battle plan for our victory. We can find it in his word. We can find it in our confession and in our prayers and the work of the spirit in our lives. Look what Philippians two says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember, um, we want to move forward in God-confidence, not self-confidence. And remember, too, what Aiken would have learned. If we wait on his timing, we find the most wonderful treasures of all that he has for us. In fact, I have a poem that talks about that. Giving him, relying on him. My father's paths might twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache, but in my soul, I'm glad to know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans, they go astray. My hopes may fade away, but still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he knows the way. There's so much now I can't see. My eyesight's far too dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust. And leave it all to him. For by and by this mist will lift. And plain it all he will make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. It's the truth. Okay, finally I've learned digging up those hidden sins in our hearts. Brings us out of a valley of trouble and opens for us a door of hope. Look at Hosea 2.15. This was a future promise to Israel that God made. And there I will give Israel her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, the valley that was trouble. And I thought, hey, facing those really deep-rooted sins in our lives that we're afraid to give to God, that we hold on to, when we start to give them to Him, we just get depressed, We feel defeated, and sometimes we can feel so ashamed that we spiritually get paralyzed and don't move forward. We just give up. But God doesn't want us to stay in that dark valley of trouble. He wants us to go to the open door of hope. Handing our sins to him leads us to that door of opportunity to a new life. It is a door of hope. We can stand looking down at that valley of trouble as Israel stood looking down over a valley and we can shout out our amens to God's forgiveness and God's future, he has plans for us. There is a land of promise that awaits everyone who decides to walk down God's path. Look at Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life, God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can say amen to that. Let me pray. Father, you are strong and good and at the same time compassionate and forgiving. And so we praise you today. We give you our lives knowing that you love us and you have plans for us. Teach us to walk on your path every single day. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.